0: I'm Lisa DeLay, and you're listening to the Spark My Muse podcast. Welcome to Spark My Muse, everybody. Today is a writer that I've known probably for the longest time on the internet. Uh, we've been in fairly regular contact since the early days of blogging, long before Web 2.0 and long before social media and before Twitter, Ed he You lived in New England at the time, I believe, Ed. Today, we're going to be talking about your book, Flee, Be Silent and Pray, Ancient Prayers for Anxious Christians. Thank you so much for being my guest today. It's great to have you back. I really, really enjoyed your book, and I think there's just so much to get from this book. I have a soft spot in my heart for contemplative spirituality, but not only is this book just sort of informative and giving people a glimpse into contemplative spirituality and prayer, but it's just really apropos for our times. And maybe you can talk a little bit about the journey to make this book, because this is sort of the second incarnation of it.
1: The original version of this book was published in twenty sixteen in June, and then it was picked up by Herald Press um <clears throat> about a year later. And so we we did a revision and the core idea of the book remains in that um I, I was a former Catholic and had a very very oppressive, I guess I would, the word I would use, uh parish and the priests were kind of controlling and there there were all kinds of issues with the priest and my interest in the Bible and and then trying to stamp that out. And so I kind of became this like kind of raging Protestant who was out to kind of destroy Catholicism. I remember highlighting in my Bible, all the verses that I thought kind of uh, attacked Catholic beliefs. And it was a major source of stress and, and division in my family. And ironically, as I go to seminary and I kind of hit my hit a wall because, you know, you, mm. you end up, t- I kind of turned the Bible into my textbook and, and searching for God and, and didn't really have any kind of spirituality, didn't have anything to kind of hang on to. And all of these like Catholic kind of rooted, I mean, you know, they're, they're, they had roots going back to the early church, but they were coming from Catholic sources, all these, you know, uh, prayer methods like Lectio Divina and, uh, the examine and, and, uh, the Jesus prayer and, and praying in silence and centering prayer. And so these things started to come. And, and so I became kind of the least likely person to embrace this because I'd been so like anti-Catholic. Anything that looked Catholic, I was against. And so that kind of <clears throat> won me over. And what I found is that a lot of the anxiety I had about prayer, a lot of the struggles I had with spirituality, they were answered with, you know, kind of immersing myself in these, in these contemplative practices.
0: Mm. And when we talk about contemplative practices and prayer for someone who's not aware of what that is, what do you, what would you say are the major uh, differences just at first blush?
1: I like to to use like a gardening example of, uh, you know, there's kind of the, the digging up the ground, kind of preparing the ground aspect of it. And that's where a lot of the, like, uh, praying the Psalms or Lectio Divina or the hourly prayer, fixed prayer, um, the examine comes in where you're kind of you know, tilling things up a bit. And then, uh, the, then there's the, the planting is the contemplative practices where you're, you're basically, you're, you're making your intention toward God. You're, you're, uh, kind of clearing away some of the thoughts that might cloud, uh, your ability to commune with God, but the actual like growing in the, and the, the life it, it comes from God. And that's the, the contemplative prayer is a prayer of the heart. It's a work of God in our lives. It's a work of grace. And, you know, what's hard for maybe like an evangelical like myself to understand is that I want to I want to see the results. I want to see the like A plus B, you know, or 1 plus Mm. 1 equals 2. I want to see how this creates these results and track it and, and, you know, report on it. Hmm. My kind of shareholders meeting to track my spirituality. (laughs) You know, contemplative prayer is like you're going to just, you know, sit in silence. And wait on God patiently, like the Psalms say, and whatever happens, happens.
0: Hmm. Yeah, the the really big difference is that people um, first have a hard time understanding, in, in my experience too, is that it's kind of like, what do I do? What's the action plan? And what's the, how productive is it? And, and it's very, um, we have, in, at least in the United States, a kind of a Capitalists look at it like we're you know almost like it's a we're factories for prayer and what are we going to get on the other side of the factory uh, production wise <laughs> and contemplative prayer really kind of throws that on its head and says actually you don't you can just sit there there isn't doesn't have to be active you can rest and I love the um, the term you use in the book sweet repose there's a portion in the book, and it says three actions: flee, be silent, pray. Form the basis of contemplative prayer tradition that blossomed to life with the desert fathers and mothers. And that's, of course, the title of the book. Would you go into explaining that a little bit?
1: Yeah, uh, one of the formative books for me in my own journey, just in discovering prayer and finding it. And that's and that's really what this book tries to do. Is it's not it's not a it's not a comprehensive introduction to contemplative prayer. I mean, I try to give people some some basics, but. The organizing approach of the book is my own story, so it's just like here are the books that I happen to read and kind of walk people through it, and I try to supplement it with other other sources as well. But um, but I happen to be reading uh, Henry Nallens, The Way of the Heart, and mm-hmm. he he has a story from Abba Arsenius who was this wealthy Roman senator, and he prayed, Lord, lead me in the way of salvation, and the response he heard from God was. Arsenius, flee be silent pray always for these are the sources of sinlessness and that that strikes me because i feel like especially as an evangelical coming at this i I try to i write the book especially the revised version is written for a broader christian audience but i i try to be true to my my roots and my own story of where i'm coming from and for evangelicals it's like our our three words would be like engage speak up read scripture it would be like you know get out there do stuff (laughs) you know make make it happen um (laughs) <laughs> you know, if, if you had an evangelical prayer word, it would be like majesty, glory, power. You know, it would be uh, <laughs> righteousness. And so, please be silent, pray kind of runs against the grain of a lot of folks, I think, as far as what they were uh, taught to do. And and so, yeah, it's, it's kind of counterintuitive. And what's fascinating to me is that the Desert Fathers, you know, we know about what they taught and said because people went out to visit them. They sought solitude, but they also had a lot of visitors. They they sent letters to people. I mean, they they ministered to people through their silence and solitude. And so I think evangelicals especially, but just Christians in general today could learn from that that view of ministry of of having a foundation of, of prayer and silence and solitude and and then using that whatever comes out of that as your your ministry.
0: Hmm. You talk in the book too about a period of time where you had an anxiety attack and it had to do with this evangelical, um, you know, approaching strangers and and telling them your testimony and this kind of also very active, um, you know, show your faith, testify, and how that was such a sort of defensive posture you had to be in. And then um, maybe take us through a little bit about those differences and then how um, the contemplative side does a lot toward, um, addressing anxiety and, and those types of things for you.
1: One of the things I try to, try to spell out in the book a little bit is that this isn't like necessarily a therapy. This is like the goal isn't mm-hmm. to get happy or to get inner peace that the, the goal is communion with God. But mm-hmm. you know, the kind of the fruit of this practice though, is that it can, it can help with some of the anxieties and, I'm also careful to say that if you need to take medicine, if you need to go to counseling, like please, by all means, do that. I just caution people to say, if you haven't tried this, you know, maybe try making a space for it. And it's it's a challenge because you know Cynthia Bourgeau says uh, in her book on contemplative prayer that uh, you sometimes see the fruit in a year or two or three, like that. It it, it takes mm-hmm. patience and the 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 awareness. You know, those are those are kind of developed over time. But I do think that if you practice this like centering prayer or or silence or any of these contemplative practices, that there is a, an awareness that you gain of yourself, that you become aware of, of just your, your mindset, your mentality, um, if you're practicing the examine, that's a way to just be aware of your thoughts and what's going on in your head. So there are a lot of really, really just, I would say like side benefits of, this way of praying. Hmm.
0: You do grow in awareness. and One of the neat things that happens in contemplative prayer practice in in my own life, I realized too, is that you are just practicing an awareness of of God's presence, but you become aware of of everything at the same time. It's a kind of general awakening uh, as well. For me too, growing up in a, As a child in a fundamentalist situation, prayer was usually like, God deserves our worship and our praise and our thanks and and we need to intercede. And there's all these things that are kind of like, make sure you get these things in or do the acts, the, you know, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, you know, do do all those things and make sure you get them in there. You have a great quote in your book. I really, that really stuck out to me that I really like you say, prayer is the practice of becoming present for God's love. And if we just thought of it, prayer in just those terms to start off with, the transformation that could start to be seen in our lives would be so radically different than the kind of anxious or (laughs) the kind of other sorts of prayers um, that I used to have all the way up until I started beginning in contemplative prayer.
1: Right. And there's definitely an aspect of this, and this is where I try to start the book, is that if you don't have... A grounding or a a beginning understanding of God's love if you don't have that as your mm. ground floor I think that's really that, that's really like what where you need to begin uh, even before you start mm. the trial of this stuff out and honestly like one of the questions that drove me in this project was how do you love God like Jesus says love the Lord your God like that's a command right it seems a little weird like like you're know, commanding you to love somebody um why is that so important and then how do you do that? How, how do you like make yourself love someone? <laughs> you know, um, and, you know, the to the place where I, I began was, you know, what what do I think of God? What do I imagine about God? And do I imagine God as someone who's disappointed at, in me or angry at me? And I think that's a really helpful place to start with all this with any kind of spirituality or, or prayer or, you know just as, as with Christianity in general whether you're ex evangelical or evangelical or or just a you know regular mainline protestant ask like what what do you imagine about God and and I really think that the, the ministry of Jesus that's kind of bookended by these two experiences the his baptism and his transfiguration it's you know God the Father saying that this is my son whom I love well pleased. Mm. That's a really, I think that that's a really significant moment that I, I think we, we shouldn't just write it off as something that happened for Jesus. I think, and Richard Rohr says, that we make the mistake of, of worshiping Jesus instead of imitating his journey. And asking mm. like, well, maybe there's something here for me. And, and if you read Paul, evangelicals like me are super, super good at that. Uh, but mm-hmm. look at what Paul says about the love of God. Like in Ephesians, is comprehending the height and depth and, and width. You know, it's, it's this incomprehensible mm-hmm. love of God for you. And so if you don't have a sense of that, well, then you're not going to love God. You're not going to want to pray. And all mm-hmm. the talk of duty and of obligation of, you know, well, Jesus did this for you, then you should, you know, if he sacrifices life for you, then you should sacrifice five minutes to pray. <laughs> that is that's just toxic and poison and it just destroys love for god destroys prayer and so you know you need to start with with that that unfathomable unmeasurable love of god for each person like when you know when john writes that god so loved the world and if you can't imagine yourself as being part of the world that god loves then you're not going to want to pray
0: yeah we're talking about something very different duty versus intimacy if you're not there yet it's awfully hard to feel comfortable in in the awareness of the presence of God because you're are you comfortable there are you do you feel worthy to be there, or do you feel like God is kind of clicking his tongue and shaking his head and shaking her head mm-hmm. <laughs> is uh, right. running along that track for a second, if somebody has a pretty warped view or damaged view or say they have had spiritual abuse or even parental abuse that has damaged some of that some of that view of God. Do you have suggestions about that?
1: That's a great question and honestly like after I wrote this book and I taught a like a class on this and there was someone in the class who had been through just just that experience and mm-hmm. had a very negative view of God and I don't know what what to tell that person honestly. Uh, mm-hmm. because the Bible's been used in abusive ways and you know their trust has been broken. And so mm-hmm. there's just a lot of anger at God. And so mm-hmm. I, I honestly didn't know what to say because you know contemplative prayer it really is it's a leap in the dark. It's, it's a leap of faith. Uh, you have to take the Bible at its word and you have to you know step out in faith. I mean, one of the things that's been helpful for me is having a spiritual director.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, I asked a spiritual director, uh, about the, you know, about the situation and she said, you know, if this person's angry at God, then this person should just scream at God, like just tell God how you feel. And I th- I felt that was a helpful place to start. Um, but I think that while we have a great benefit of reading these books on prayer and spiritual practices, um, if it feels like you have a hard time starting with this, if you feel like, you know, maybe there is something in your history that makes it hard to enter into, um, that might be the most helpful way forward is to find someone like a spiritual director who can help you, uh, dig through some of what happened in the past. Because I think Mm -hmm. that, you know, learning the methods and things like that could be really frustrating. And if, if you're mm-hmm. just angry at God over or something and rightfully, if, you, if the Bible's been misused and there's, and you probably have an impression of a God who I would say doesn't exist, but I would be angry mm-hmm. at that God too. And so
0: mm-hmm. yeah.
1: find someone who can guide you through those thoughts.
0: Yeah. It's been part of my journey to, to move past what, what has been spiritual abuse and There are several points that that helped me that I'll just mention really briefly. One is that all feelings are represented in the Psalms, and we could pray the Psalms. And there's cursing Psalms, and that's perfectly allowed uh, to have any kind of feelings towards God or or God's people. Um, Sometimes we need to separate. The second thing is that we need to separate usually what God's people do to us versus what God is doing, what they're doing in God's name versus who God is, who and God isn't a man and a, a human. And then when God does have skin on as Jesus, Jesus is very different than than men and than other humans. And that has been a great comfort to me that that Jesus doesn't operate like typical men. And that has helped me just have a little distance to start with and say, maybe I don't. I feel this way, but maybe I shouldn't have my mind made up about God quite yet. Mm-hmm. And then just allow, just to give a crack in the door. <laughs> that if God wants to show up somehow differently, that I will allow that to happen. Because a lot of times you can have your heart seared and be so wounded and upset and scarred that you kind of don't want to give God a chance anymore. And the contemplative way offers a space for some change to happen.
1: That's great.
0: You talk about the uh, practice of examine. You say examine. I wind up saying examine, so tomato, tomato. (laughs) But um, you say if there's only one contemplative practice you you should do, this is it. And I would love for you to explain that and and just explain what you mean by this practice.
1: Yeah. uh, So while contemplative prayer is the you know, the work of God in us. I think there are these practices that kind of help, you know, like I said, they kind of help plow up the ground and help us to uh, begin. And one of the things that I found when I first tried out Centering Prayer was my mind was just flooded with thoughts and distractions. And, and if you read like The Cloud of Unknowing, uh, there's a lot of time devoted. This is, this is like the foundational book of uh, Centering Prayer and Contemplation that, you know, has been passed on for, you know, generations now. Um, it was written by a Carthusian monk in England in, the, I don't like the 1300s or so. And, and so there's a lot of time devoted to distracting thoughts. And when I ask people about, you know, their, their challenges with prayer, one of the biggest things is distracting thoughts. And so I, I think the exam is a really helpful way to begin. And I'm probably saying this like a Philadelphian. that's, you know, probably the, (laughs) the accents coming in, but, um, the, the examine is a a practice of awareness. It's it's asking questions mm-hmm. about your day, where God is, and and what you're grateful for, and what you're you know where you failed, and you know what you want to you know say to God about that. And there's different versions of it. I I use one. It's spelled examine examine. It's like e x a m i n e. That's on my iPhone. Uh, there are different versions out there. There's also the Reimagining Examine app. What it does is it helps you kind of take inventory and sort through your thoughts. And then when you go to pray, you've kind of done some of that work to kind of sort through the thoughts that come up. And and while you're centering prayer, then you can use a prayer word to to kind of let go of your thoughts and you can keep your intention toward God and God's love. But I think the examine helps dig into some of that. And also just if prayer is hard, if you're having a hard time making space or time for prayer, you know, the examine helps you just take inventory of your day. So you can look at what's happening and say, Oh, this is why I feel the way I do.
0: Yeah. I've almost thought of it as, um, mental journaling in a way. It's like, a and And when I first started this practice- examine in my um in graduate school, I was well again, this is part of the spiritual abuse thing i was I was beating myself up really badly, like I was fault finding and fault finding and fault finding, and I was feeling worse and worse about myself, and it was creating distance between me and God. but then a spiritual director told me she said um you're all you're doing is um going back over your day." with noticing you're you're not judging your day you're not you're noticing things and you're noticing you know notice the points where you were aware of god's presence and then notice some things that you would like to to change for the next day but you're not bringing judgment down on your head like oh you're such a bad person such a failure you know that was my first inclination Um, so for people who have a hard time with that you didn't have a hard time with that at all I i did
1: i did I still, I still do. No, and I—that's—I came up with okay. my spiritual director recently it felt, you know, yeah, absolutely, absolutely.
0: Yeah. So for for perfectionists, the examine can exacerbate some of those tendencies and not allow uh, produce like grace toward ourselves where we would we might feel more distance with God. But if if it done graciously as as um like a tender teacher would be like, let's review your day now. Where did you notice God and God's joy and God's presence and you felt the joy of the Lord with you? And then where are some parts that you felt like the desolation, the desolation of the spirit where, you know, where did you feel upset or, um, yanked out into despair or, and you kind of would just review your day and then you would pray toward those things at the end of the day and, and just start over the next day. I don't know if you were yeah. taught in a different way by your director maybe you could go into a little bit of your process.
1: yeah I, I, I completely relate to all, everything you just said and so I think that you know one of the questions that I ask myself is kind of where's where's the life at um, mm. kind of pulling from my like charismatic family's side side of things mm-hmm. um, yeah. and that that helps me you know so for instance I take the trash out and I look up at the sky, at nighttime. And there, there's life there. That's, like, that's a joyful moment of, of awareness. And I can, mm. um, I can connect with God. That's a reminder to, you know, when I haven't, you know, as busy as my evenings are, uh, I, can, I can take advantage of a moment to go outside and maybe, you know, pick up something or put something away and to just enjoy, enjoy the stars and to be, be aware of God. Um, to be aware of, you know, am I am I delighting in my kids? Am I enjoying that gift? Uh, so just, you know, just even at that, that kind of basic level of just gratitude for uh, for things. I think that those are those are really helpful ways just to look for life, to look for joy. And yeah, and then obviously with the, the failure aspect of it um, and like looking at the places where maybe like things didn't go well or where I failed. You know, there that's that's an invitation for confession and that's that's why I really like kind of dovetailing that with kind of the fixed hour prayer, praying the hours, because the uh complaint at the end of the day ends with a, a confession as well. And so um that's you know, obviously I think that there are different different ways and different questions or perspectives to, to bring to it, but I think just taking a basic level of looking for looking for life, looking for gratitude can be a, a constructive way to look at the examine. Mm.
0: One of the most enriching things about the contemplative way to me, especially in the kind of times we live in with, with the phone, you know, always there and everything, is um the, the two chapters that you cover on solitude, chapter six and and silence in chapter seven. Um you, you talk about Henry Nouwen's um, furnace of transformation, as he calls solitude. I love that um, that turn of phrase, the furnace of transformation. You yeah. <laughs> um, want uh, to sign up for that? <laughs> <laughs> Would you like a furnace? Uh, but um, <laughs> and then also you you mentioned on page sixty two, what is the noise hiding? And, um, it's amazing how addicted we are to noise that you don't really, you know, you don't really realize it till you turn it all off and then you feel so strangely agitated, like out of your skin, you know? Um, but the, the contemplative way really is part and parcel for the silent solitude piece. And if people aren't really accustomed to that or attuned to that, that might be the part where things break down. Um, you know, maybe you can speak a little to those to those two points. Um, and uh, I mean, there's a lot. Obviously, there's two whole chapters you you commit to that. But uh, anything you want to say towards that, and also um, the really cool boats passing uh, Thomas Keating boats passing metaphor was was great too. I love that way to kind of calm down the thoughts. Um, maybe you could start there and then go into whatever else you want to say about right. those pieces.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Thomas Keating uses a a uh, metaphor of these these boats, and you imagine yourself that you're you know by by a stream, and all these boats are going by, and the boats are your thoughts, or just different ideas that you're considering, and you know I think this is really helpful when you think about social media. So mm. you know if someone you know is rude to you or, or whatever, or just annoys you, you know, you're like, like listening to the news. I, I would get this way too, where It's like that boat comes by and you jump on it and you were like flying down the rapids with that, that thought, that boat, because you know, you're really agitated at what this politician did, or you're really agitated at what someone said to you on social media. And you're kind of, you're going over it and over it and over it in your mind. And mm. what, you know, Thomas Keating says for centering prayer is that you use the prayer word to gently, Let go of the boat. Don't get on the boat. Let the boat go by. And just use your prayer word. Instead of beating yourself up over it, just use the prayer word to kind of go back to a place of silence before God and and keep your intention toward God's love and to be present for God's love. And so, uh, you know, that that thought comes by about what you saw on Twitter or Facebook and you say, like, Mm -hmm. beloved, 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 and just let that go by. And then you kind of return to your silence before God and then the next book comes by and it's just beloved, beloved, beloved. Yeah. So just let that, let that pass. And it's, you know, so that's the thing about this, this, these practices is that there is a, a process of, of learning it. Um, mm-hmm. you know, Richard Rohr says that when you begin to experience silence the, the first year, is when a lot of your, he, he calls it the junk. I, I don't know what, <laughs> what the best word to use is, but you know, some of the, the <laughs> negative stuff, the, the stuff that you fear, the stuff that you're angry about, uh, a lot of that comes up in the first year. And so that's, that's hard. That's not, that's not pleasant. And that's why I wrote this book, honestly, because I think it's a little too much to kind of jump into, um, to jump into like 20 minutes of silent centering prayers a lot and so you know what I found is that I was you know I was jogging or or walking and I I wanted to have podcasts on and I thought well what if I did uh, silence for the first half of the walk and then on the way home if I can be silent my reward is going to be this podcast right so uh, yeah there was like there was some training wheels for me you know I I was doing, doing the examine app and it has an option to do five minutes of silence and that was like man, five minutes of silence, how am I ever going to survive that? And I remember gritting my teeth through those five minutes of silence. And, you know, that's, it's, it's a process. And, you know, the first year might be kind of a little agonizing as some stuff comes up. And what you do is you learn these practices to, to really work through it. And and one of the, the things I did in the new edition is I, I have more like, um, like next steps at the end of each chapter, things to put into practice to try out. And I end the book with the recommendation of the book, um, into the silent land and by Martin Laird. And it's a wonderful book about just giving some basic, simple practices to, to try out and to put into, put into practice each day. And that, that was also just really helpful for me to face. He calls them afflicting thoughts, afflictive thoughts that, you know, we have these negative thoughts or, or worries that, that come upon us. And the contemplative way isn't to numb it with noise or to numb it with alcohol or numb it with food. The contemplative way is to face it and go through it. And you go through it in faith and it's scary and it's hard. And, and you kind of try to see what you can find on the other side of that of that fear or afflicted thought.
0: Mm. You know, one of the reasons it's such a cornerstone to the contemplative way is because Without doing something like having a prayer word, you don't wake up, you're not aware of your thoughts, you're not aware, you're just in them, and you're just in your feelings and thoughts, and you're carried away. But when you return to center, or you awaken to, actually, I'm feeling something, and I'm, I'm the knower that knows I'm knowing, or knows I'm feeling, then you actually can have an awakening to God's presence in that moment. yeah, oh, okay, I'm God's child. If you say beloved, oh, I am God's child. I don't have to be carried away with my desires and my feelings and my thoughts. oh, I can just rest here and wait on the Lord. but without that interruption, where where are you really? you know <laughs> and that's why it's so crucial. but if you only have noise and you never have solitude or silence and you always have those, Chatter, the brain chatter, which is pretty much the default setting. I think, unless unless I'm missing something, that's the default setting. Unless you cultivate something else, right. um, how will you know uh, that you're experiencing or aware of God's presence because you're just on some wild boat ride? I, I think it's really, <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, that's the thing is that you most people in this at this point aren't. Uh, Like sometimes this will happen if people take walks. They will eventually, you know, that bilateral motion or something, they can like, oh, I finally got some stillness here. Um, But at this point, you go to the gym or something, and there's like 10 TVs there. Or you're you're trying to ignore the TVs by putting in your own music and headphones. And there really isn't any place to escape noise. People would go to coffee shops. But now the coffee shops have TVs. <laughs> so you're kind of like, uh, there's almost no place. You have to really be good at cultivating it. before we get into the chapter 10 we could talk a little bit about darkness this is something else sometimes evangelicals conservative christians will avoid because it seems like a backsliding or it seems like a lack of faith that um i remember one of one of the choruses we used to sing at my church was climb climb up sunshine mountain and
1: (laughs) i don't know if anybody remembers that
0: it's like if you're not climbing Sunshine Mountain, you're doing it wrong. Okay. You talk about an interesting way of putting it. It's a crisis of knowledge, not a crisis of faith, that sometimes puts us into a place of deconstruction or or darkness where we we run out of knowledge and and we need the box that we have put God in or put um, what we know in doesn't work anymore. And we can also in in the dark night. Of course, we lose our sense of our sensing of God's presence or we lose the experience of feeling that what worked before, uh, we're not experiencing those good feelings and there's a withdrawing of God. And that can be so disorienting to people. Um, Maybe you can talk a little bit about this. This is a really um, misunderstood, (laughs) misunderstood thing. And it can also um, people who are depressed can there's some confusion there sometimes, too.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, I felt like I couldn't write about contemplative prayer, especially for, you know, originally I was writing for e- e- either evangelicals or people coming out of the evangelical movement. And I I just couldn't write about it without the dark night of the soul and just doubts and, and those places because, you know, we're we're praying to a mysterious God, to an unknown God. And this is a you know, this is a, a mysterious way to pray. It's you're, you're taking yourself out of the driver's seat. You don't have control. And, you know, so you're putting yourself at, at God's mercy. And the thing that God may choose to do at the time may not feel like uh, the right thing, or it may not at least fit within what you expect God would do. And I think a lot of times we have these attachments or desires or expectations for prayer. You know, if, if we don't expect you know, some kind of mountaintop experience, we at least expect prayer to make us feel better. You know, we expect to make me happier. And if you read Mother Teresa's letters, you know, during her dark night of the soul that lasted for the majority of her ministry, you know, she had this very sweet encounter with Jesus, and then this dark night of the soul hit. And, you know, she had to just go on faith, and it was not easy, and and her, her letters are very anguished. And it's not comfortable to read that. And so... You know, she she had to live every day just choosing to love other people to to be present for God. But she didn't get the the same kind of spiritual encounter that she had initially. And that's I think that's a kind of a common thing is that people might have some kind of a encounter or some kind of experience of God initially. And then, you know, they might get kind of like, well, I want to have that again. And that's not the point. (laughs) Mm-hmm. And that's the hardest thing for people to, to grasp. And so uh, there's kind of a couple different levels to that that chapter In that there's just kind of there, there are doubts. There's mystery. There's just kind of that general sense of like stepping into darkness of not knowing. Um, I don't mean that in sense of darkness of like depression. That's completely different. Um, but a, a dark night of the soul could be a time of just distance from God. And I've heard it described as like a spiritual depression. It's not that it's not depression. Um, but it's, it is a, it's a distance from God and it's a time for, for breaking attachments to things, to expectations. And so, um, there's a couple different ways to think about that chapter and that's, but I think that you can't talk about contemplation without some discussion of the dark night of, of doubt, of this uncertainty of, of letting go of expectations. And so, uh, and, and really this, the word is, is mystery.
0: Mm. Yeah, I I know I've talked to um, several spiritual directors and they, in their own dark night, they talked about being out in the middle of the night on on a dark ocean and just not knowing where land is or anything. Um, And then kind of realizing God is the ocean Um, or um, one other guy told me, um, it's like you're falling but then you realize you're falling and you're falling and you're falling. But then you realize at first you're scared and then you realize, well, there's no bottom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's like one of those, you know, those are like word pictures for their description of what it has felt like. But then there is a, a dawn too. Um, and what uh, Merton talks about um, is that, you know, a lot of people will will pray and feel like it's not working because they're trying to find something very worthwhile in their, in their times of prayer. Right. And if you're in, if you're in a dark night, or even if you're not, sometimes you're not going to find anything worthwhile. Um, you're like, well, that, that didn't make me feel anything. <laughs> or, yeah. I don't feel any closer to God after this experience. And we're looking for the, the prize at the bottom of the box. <laughs> If someone is experiencing that and they are really going through a dry an arid desert period or something typically what have you heard uh, from advice or, or wisdom from your spiritual director or what is typically recommended for that
1: Well yeah I'm not I am not a spiritual director so I wouldn't feel comfortable like giving mm-hmm. advice here but I felt like I needed to at least create the space for the conversation about Mm. that and just I think that you know people are just so um you know I'm just coming I'm coming at this from that evangelical tradition where this isn't even Mm. on the map. Like you know this isn't you know you wouldn't even think about this being possible. And so I think that's one of the you know this the starting point is just to say yes, (laughs) it is possible. (laughs) And and that, you know, like this is a leap of faith. And so I think that you know the the funny thing about being an evangelical is that you kind of if you go back into the tradition a little bit like we do have some of the language for it um that this this is like you're walking by faith not by sight like that's that's a concept that evangelicals can get and so you know so a lot of people i'm talking to who are evangelicals where you know this isn't on the map just to give them some language to mm-hmm. process it a little bit can be can be helpful and then uh, you know since i'm not a spiritual director i usually then i say mm-hmm. like Talk to a spiritual director for your your own situation, but to give people just to, to help them not despair.
0: Yeah, and also there's you know there's Job as in the Bible he's suffering, but it's not because he's sinning, but he is still in anguish and and God seems to not be there, even though right Job's crying out. And I heard I heard someone speak of it in this way too um, that in the beginning when when you're spiritually young, you're a sapling or you're you're a you're a young babe, that you need that spiritual the sweetness of the spiritual milk. Right. And right. that it is sweet and delicious and, and you're you know, you need that. And then there's a time that you are weaned from, from that for, for something else to to do to do this part of the journey with without sight and with faith and that no baby wants to be weaned because that's so comforting it's so warm it's so nourishing and when god withholds the breast to wean us it's going to feel horrible and and so unloving (laughs) like what is happening And, and what baby wouldn't think the exact same thing but it's time for something else and it's it's time to to eat different sorts of food. It's time for different sorts of eyes. And this does feel really, really harsh on that side of it. And I I uh, have thought of that metaphor and thought about, um, you know, you don't know how long this weaning or whatever is going to last, but it just feels um, like abandonment. Yeah, absolutely. Can we move into the, the last chapter, which has kind of been revamped. It's called Now What? Alternatives to Consumer Contemplation. If if there's anything that we have to rid ourselves of, is this the, the water we're swimming in, you know, is the consumerist model. Um, maybe you can go into a little bit of how that was formulated.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is something that I, I've i had a, a major burden for. And just after putting the book out there and, and just seeing some of the conversations people have about contemplative prayer, just Right off the bat, one big thing is that silence, right? There, there is a sense of, you know, in our culture today that you know silence chooses the side of the oppressor, right? So there could be a misapplication of silence. Mm. You know, just talking about, you know, the now. What do we do with all this stuff that we're talking about integrating into our lives? I am, I, I am advocating for silence and solitude, but as a formational um process of a foundational mm-hmm. thing and then we we can minister out of those things and we can we can serve others out of those things we can advocate for justice and speak up more more appropriately or or just in a better more grounded way instead of just reacting to stuff we can we can speak from a grounded aware perspective and so that's the big picture of that chapter just to give people a you know kind of i'm playing on kind of the evangelical background i come out of because that's the big like you get to the end of a a sermon and it's the, the now what the application what do we do now and <laughs> you know i i deleted the joke about the three-point sermon because the book is plea be silent pray oh. <laughs> <laughs> but you know i i think that's the the danger is that you could read a book about silence and solitude and say all right i'm gonna pack it up and you know get out of here. And, and, uh, I'm not going to disturb my peace here. Got my, got my, my spiritual peace. And, and that's not the point of this at all. The point is to be formational. And so I, I get into some of the, the different people who have used contemplative prayer as a, as their foundational spiritual practices, as they get involved in advocacy and justice, justice work. And, and even if just, um, I was able to find this uh prayer it's a commitment card from the uh the civil rights movement in Birmingham, Alabama. And hmm. when I think about like what the, the different like cards I created working at a church back in the day, mm-hmm. the the top of the card, maybe three quarters of the card, it's all about committing to regular prayer, to uh meditating on the teachings of Jesus. It's it's all these spiritual formation practices. Uh, it's not contemplation per se, but it's close. It's really close to uh, a contemplative approach and in cultivating a life of, of Christian service and Christian prayer. And then at the very end of the card, they have a little line that says, "Oh, can you also like deliver food, make phone calls? Like it's all the all the practical stuff." But the civil rights movement, they saw that this prayer was this really, really top priority to commit to, and then. If you commit to all that, all these, you know, these 10 spiritual practices, then if and you can also help out with the food and the, the phone calls and the flyers. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, the formation piece uh, is the foundational piece from which everything else can emerge. But And and you were talking about, too, Thomas Merton, you know, is this hermit for a while, but that doesn't make him want to stay away from people. It. It is the resource and, and the refreshment before he is active as a civil rights thinker and leader in the world for for peace and and against nuclear war. Yeah. Do you want to go into a little bit of about uh, just briefly about his life, how the contemplative um, way worked in his life a little bit?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of different um, contemplatives who got really involved in activism. Um, there's there's Howard Thurman who is a uh, theologian and a contemplative and uh, he he you know had a, a powerful influence on Martin Luther King um, you know Merton was was reading a lot of the people that Martin Luther King was reading and so there's a lot of a lot of crossover a lot of cross pollination uh, yeah mm-hmm. and Merton was you know a Catholic I think we forget this at a time when you know you didn't have people in the Catholic Church leaders speaking out against nuclear war speaking out against you know the Vietnam War it wasn't It wasn't a common thing, and so I have a share part of a letter that he wrote with Dorothy Day, and he's despairing. He's saying, you know, maybe I need to to leave my vocation. Uh, At least I've thought about it. I think that God will make a way for me, but I've I've considered leaving my vocation as a monk uh, to to advocate for other people. And so um, he he had that burden very strongly, and he I think he viewed his books as part of that ministry of reaching out and he also wrote a ton of letters just so many letters to different people to encourage them to to help them in their in their work
0: Mm. yeah i and i believe it was him that said you know if you can't handle solitude and silence then you're not going to be good at community and if you are not good at community you're not going to be able to do well at solitude and silence the one feeds the other each right. one feeds the other and i love that balanced approach um you know and, and jesus really was the same way he would go off and pray first and then he'd be among the throngs and then he'd go off and pray and then you know it was like right. it was seeking solitude and silence and that was the recharge refreshment and then jesus wouldn't shy away from his disciples and and the throngs but there was he wasn't constantly out there either and i think that's um you know truly giving of himself truly touching um diseased people and everything but also having plenty of time alone and and in prayer in contemplative prayer uh, is a is a great way to I mean, that's our example. So I, I think right. um, <laughs> I mean, we, it is our example. Yeah. So, um, pretty good one. Yeah, there, is there any final words you'd like to, to say about the book or any other wisdom or anything like that that you want to close out with for the book?
1: Just that the book really is, there's a lot of information in it, but, but really at the heart of it, it's a story too. Um, mm. It's a story of someone who was incredibly... Suspicious of contemplative prayer and, and the related practices, and kind of the that drives a lot of why I chose what I chose to share in the book and who I quote, and it just happens to be what I what I read. And that um, I my hope is that it will open up a whole other world for for readers. That you know, I think that I I try to voice the misgivings or apprehensions people may have about contemplative prayer or contemplation. Um, I try to identify some of the kind of common hangups that a lot of Christians face about prayer and the struggles, feeling like you can never pray enough. And mm. I just I'm, I'm trying to give people a, a starting point. I think that's the hardest thing when you get into a new kind of a new practice with contemplative prayer It's this whole other world. And there's all these books out there, which who do I trust? What a, I use my my own story to kind of help people get a, a starting point. And kind of once you get your your feet on the ground a little bit with some of the practices and some of the the authors, uh, my hope is that you can you know explore and uh, it can be a, a fruitful way forward in, in your life and, and that's, I mean that's what I've heard from people who have read the book is that they they felt like it finally gave them a place a place to begin and so it's mm. not it's not the last word, it's not the like the only story, but I think it's a it's a helpful story, especially for people coming out of conservative religious backgrounds or evangelical religious backgrounds, I, I try to address where where those readers especially are coming from.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's important to note, too, that we don't have any idea really how culturally bound our spiritual traditions and practices are. Yeah. Sometimes sometimes backing up to 2,000 years helps us get a better picture of what Christians have been doing devotionally what has helped them through the black plague right. <laughs> what has helped them yeah. through the times when they were getting lit up to be uh, candlelight at uh, nero's parties or something these were things that have been used for for a long long time that we've only been recently praying in certain ways in evangelical christianity in the united states anyway that's very very recent and we can look back on the rich Christian history and draw so many things from the devoted. And um, we're just scratching the surface, really.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you.
0: Sure. Um, now, would you like to speak about anything else that you're working on?
1: Yeah, well, the next project I'm working on is is related to this a little bit. It's also with Herald Press. And the, the tentative title is Always Present. Uh, contemplative resistance to digital fragmentation and <laughs> <laughs> and so the 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 starting premise of this book is um, the the two competing formation uh, tools in our lives there's technology that's forming us mm-hmm. and there's these contemplative prayer practices that are forming us and they really are cross-purposes I think and Um, if, if contemplation aims to make you more aware, to make you more grounded, to more, to be more rooted in yourself and, um, and to, to kind of give control to God, to surrender to God and, and to find, uh, your true identity in in Christ, you know, technology is more about surrendering your control to the algorithm and letting the algorithm predict what you want, Mm -hmm. you know, to, you know, to make, figure out what you want to see and what you're going to buy and who you're going to be friends with and, And so, um, there there are these competing goals, and you know it's you know I I've I've been talking with a couple authors about this, uh, one of whom is Seth Haynes, and you know we've we've used the Matrix uh, comparison Mm. a lot because like honestly I forget whether it's the red pill or blue pill, but the (laughs) the more you dig into what's going on with technology and social media today, the more you feel like you're going down this rabbit hole of of you know of insanity it's just you know the Mm. the and i I honestly went into it looking at kind of the commercial aspect of it uh because you know i I read like now and in merton and they're like talking about how our world is saturated in words and you know the advertisers are you know exploiting us and we're hypnotized by our televisions and if they're writing that back in like what the 60s or 50s like (laughs) You know what would they be doing now with all this stuff? And then when you start to learn about the way that people are targeted by companies, and then you start to learn about um, you know other like like foreign governments getting involved, and and mm-hmm. the way that the news stories are being manipulated. And in some cases, as far as like the, the like fake news, coming out like legitimate fake news, not the like accusations being hurled at legitimate newspapers. But you know there are websites mm-hmm. that promote sensational stuff that's designed to get people to emotionally react right it's designed yeah. to kind of get you going and, and you your emotions get going and you start to you know share it and then we get into like what we talked about with the examine right because you're starting to you get on that boat and you're not really aware that you're just kind of mm-hmm. cycling through this thought and mixing my mixing my metaphors here but um on, <laughs> we have a washing machine on a boat you know we're cycling <laughs> you know? but um but this this is our our world and the more you you look at it the uglier the technology side of it is and there's an entire movement of people who are on the ground floor of Facebook and Google who who know what this stuff is and how it was designed and how it's supposed to work and how it's being exploited and how users mm-hmm. are being exploited today and they are they are calling out you know the technology and so mm-hmm. this is a book that's you know about Developing contemplative practices in a in a technology saturated world, but also Mm. trying to give people some of the the knowledge of what's going on and and this Mm -hmm. is how these tools are being used to to fragment and disrupt you.
0: Yeah, that's that's from your newsletter that I remember. And tell people how they can find you and get on your newsletter too.
1: It's uh, so it's just everything is kind of just my name. So it's Ed C Y Z. E W, S K I, and that's like .com, or you can do it with the at symbol for Twitter or Instagram. Um, yeah, I, I I post really edgy stuff on Instagram, like uh, Thomas Merton quotes and and random stuff my kids say. Basically, that's the. <laughs> yeah,
0: and you know that that has come up a lot too. With um, I mentioned the book to you, uh, ten reasons to get off to delete your social media account right now. Yeah. And yeah. the the guy uh, the author in that talks about uh you know, none of these CEOs and the heads of any of these social media companies let their kids on them at all. They're they're not allowed on right. them. They don't let their kids. Yeah. <laughs> There's a reason why they don't let their kids on them. Cuz it's it's purposefully meant to hack your
1: brain. Right. That sounds crazy though, right? Like when you like say it like Well, yeah. You know
0: well it's it is yeah and and it's and it's not because even they want control it's there's so much profit in it, there's so much money to be made and and they can control, you know, and now they're talking about you don't don't worry about your boarding pass at the <laughs> at the airport, just smile and we'll have your face like no, no, no face recognition yeah, yeah. <laughs> like I was just can I have my can I have a right to have my own face? metrics to myself is that okay you know i just who's allowed to control what information about me and it just seems like everybody it's just going to the highest bidder
1: yeah
0: it's a really timely book to write and there's a lot of problems associated with it but it's so hard to disentangle like where where do you where you draw the line keep me posted about your book and hopefully we'll have you have you back on and congratulations It's such a great book i can't wait to see it out there in the wild
1: thank you i uh, i appreciate you having me on again it's a, lot, a lot of fun
0: If you've listened to the show and you've thought, wow, I wish I could find out a little bit more about someone mentioned or a book or a website, that's what show notes are for. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Muse. Patreon is like patron with an E. Patreon.com forward slash sparkmymuse. If you enjoyed the show, please rate it on iTunes. Thank you so much for listening.